Welcome to Let It Roll, the insanely ambitious musical history podcast hosted by Nate Wilcox. We've covered the early history of rock and roll, country music in the 20th century, the rise of hip-hop, disco, and electronic dance music, and now heavy metal. Stay tuned for our histories of Broadway, opera, punk rock, jazz, blues, and gospel. Follow the Let It Roll podcast on Twitter at Let It Rollcast and check out our website at LetItRollPodcast.com. Let It Roll is a Pantheon podcast and you can listen to more great podcasts at www.PantheonPodcast.com. Today, Nate welcomes back Ned Sublet to discuss his book, The Year Before the Flood, A Story of New Orleans, and lots of NOLA R&B, funk, and hip-hop. Email us at letterrollpodcast at gmail.com. Pop in those earbuds and enjoy. It's time to let it roll. I'm your host, Nate Wilcox, and today Ned Sublet is returning to discuss his book, The Year Before the Flood, A Story of New Orleans. Ned, welcome back. Thank you. It's great to be here. Cool. And so this is the second book about New Orleans that you wrote. Um, as a pair, we discussed the first book, The World That Made New Orleans. The World That Made New Orleans, yes. A little while ago. Tell us about the year before the flood and why it's so narratively different, because The World That Made New Orleans is a pretty straight-up history book, but you're very much part of the narrative of the second book. The original idea was that The World That Made New Orleans and The Year Before the Flood uh, would be one big book. And of course, it didn't have those titles yet. My editor talked me out of that idea as it was both impractical from my publishing standpoint and also uh, didn't really make a lot of sense narratively since my point of view changed so drastically as I got into the present day. And it was going to be kind of a two-part history of New Orleans, but also I was very much feeling the need to uh, write something of a memoir, less a memoir of me as of what I saw, that is to say, a memoir of the world as I perceived it from my uh, personal perspective. And the, the two, we published The World That Made New Orleans first, and it turned out to be a big hit. We really thought that the year before the flood would be the hit, but uh, it wasn't. Uh, the world that made New Orleans, uh, however, uh, was and continues to be quite popular. And uh, I still get, uh, I, I see from the royalty statement, <laughs> so far the world that made New Orleans has sold more than uh, my other three books combined. And, you know, I'm just delighted to have a book that does that. However, the year before the flood in many ways is my favorite book. It's a uh, book that's in my voice, and I do continue in it the history that uh, the world that made New Orleans leaves off in um, in uh, the early 19th century. We go as far as uh, the beginning of Congo Square in the world that made New Orleans, but uh, we continue on in this book through the... Uh, through the uh, the war of uh, Southern Rebellion, after that, um, the uh, the eighteen eighties, which were a very important era in New Orleans, and into the twentieth century in the Civil Rights Movement and my own lifetime. So, uh, a history told in flashback. 
And it's a very powerful book and a very powerful technique. And I think this book might be more than some people can handle. Like the other New Orleans book is a textbook that talks about sort of relatively ancient history in a relatively straightforward way. And while the history can be upsetting because of slavery and Native American genocide, it's at an arm's length. But in this book, you're right in the story. And I don't want to spoil it, but I do really want to urge people to read this book. The, the, the personal narrative is very powerful and compelling. And there's this great surprise, not quite ending, but climax that's really powerful. I don't, I, <laughs> I don't want to give it away. Um, yeah. uh, I will. I, I actually want to. I want to jump in there because I don't think the world. The world of my New Orleans isn't a textbook. Uh, it's. Not, it really isn't. It's. It's designed to be a book you can read uh, on the plane. It's. It's designed to be a, a, a book for the general reader, and it's. You know, it's not really ancient history. It's. But kind of the point of. One of the points of the world that made New Orleans is that slavery wasn't that long ago. Uh, we think of it as a very, very long time in the United States. Well, we can't at this point remember what happened yesterday if it doesn't refresh on the screen. But uh, slavery wasn't really all that long ago in historical terms. And its consequences are with us everywhere. And you definitely see them in New Orleans today. Yeah, absolutely. And they're really in your face in the year before the flood. They're really in your face. <laughs> <laughs> and, and so, yeah, I wasn't trying to disparage the other book at all because it's a wonderful book and and, and a fun read and, and not some heavy tome. But the year before the flood just crawls out of the pages and grabs you and is scary and heartbreaking. And the cruelty and racism has... It hasn't even taken a lunch break, basically. It, it's that's right. <laughs> ever, it's that's ever well present. <laughs> and, you know, so I think that might be have been a little harder for people to handle. But there's a there's a line in there because you start the book with your childhood in Louisiana, in Natchitoches, um, which is in northeast Louisiana. Talk about your musical awakening and also your cultural awakening and kind of how you figured out began to figure out some of these complicated consequences of slavery in our American history of racism. But you had a line in there where early on you're talking quite a bit about movies and your interest in movies as a child, but you kind of segue more to music. And, and you say it's because movies told me lies, but music told me the truth. Can you elaborate on that That's distinction? Right. That's right. Uh, music, to, music told me a kind of truth that I didn't otherwise have access to. And I, as a child, lived in a world of images. It was, uh, we kind of had a metaverse back then. Uh, it, if you spent your entire life at the movie theater and listening to pop music, you were, you were in faraway places all the time. Also, if you read books, I might add. Um, and music, you know, 
music was the only place I could hear black voices because I lived in Natchitoches, Louisiana, northwestern Louisiana, a town of about 10,000, about half black. And I lived there until I was nine. We moved away in 1960. And I was never in a single social space together with a black child. We were kept completely apart, whether uh, it was at the bathrooms, at the gas station, uh, buying a Dr. Pepper at the movie theater, much less going into the library, which black people couldn't go into, or at school, which was segregated. So the one space where I heard black voices was on the radio. And I heard a kind of truth. Now, music can lie, but I heard a kind of truth coming out of those voices. And meanwhile... The movies that I saw, raised on movies, just gave me a diet, a steady diet of lies. Lies about what life was like, lies about what our history was. Uh, the, the first great movie spectacle, The Birth of the Nation, The Birth of a Nation, uh, by now um, completely discredited as uh, racist trash that spawned a new, that sparked a new iteration of the Ku Klux Klan, a despicable film by any, uh, by any reckoning. But at that time, The Birth of a Nation was still being lauded as the greatest movie ever made, the most, and indeed it was the birth of the feature film and the, and the spectacle. And from then on, we saw all kinds of movies with agendas of one kind or another made by white people for white people. Uh, we saw, I mean, it was the fifties when I was a child was the great era of the Westerns. We saw these, Westerns over and over. We saw movies set in faraway cities that didn't really, um, the told there, there was one thing that movies did well, I think, which was explore space. And I got my sense. I think one of the, to, 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 to give my grand, uh, vision of movies, I would say that I learned the beauty of the, North American continent by watching movies and that in, in the, in the Westerns, you would see these great spaces unfold that some of which later I got to know personally, but the stories we were told were mostly just racist trash. And to this day, honestly, I don't like fiction films. I can't sit through a movie. I lived in, I'm, I'm, I'm angrier because I bought them all. I went to, I lived in the movies when I was a child and I'm still unlearning what they taught me. That's why I study history and I'm still trying to understand the truth, which is why I keep listening to music. And let's hear our first tune. This is um, King Oliver with Louis Armstrong. This is one of the first instances of black New Orleanians recording jazz on record. This is Dipper Mouth Blues.
and that was a very young Louis Armstrong and his mentor, King Oliver, doing Dipper Mouth Blues, I think, in 1923. And now I'm going to kind of twist your arm and, and try to make you talk about the music you talk about in the book in, in a chronological narrative fashion. So apologies <laughs> for that. But, but I want to cover the history. And you bring out some angles that I had never heard before. You don't spend a ton of time on the creation of jazz, which pretty much indisputably was birthed in New Orleans uh, in the 1890s, 1900s. But you talk about some stuff that happens in the 1880s. And one of the key things that happened was the 8th Regiment Cavalry Band from Mexico came to New Orleans yes. and brought yes. a lot of music with them. Tell us about that. Directed by Encarnacion Payen. Yes, it was the, the big success of the Cotton Expo, which served notice to the world, a giant international trade fair that served to the notice to the world that New Orleans was back. And uh, the there were all kinds of things going on at this uh, expo, the uh, Buffalo Bills Wild West show with Annie Oakley um, came to town and camped out on the grounds that later became um, Tulane University. Uh, but the, the big, the big uh, hit was the Mexican band, which uh, played a, a varied program and which brought a number of people who Mexican musicians who remained in new Orleans and became teachers of that first generation of jazz musicians. Not all of them, uh, obviously, but those who took lessons, uh, from Lorenzo Tio, for example, uh, became important musicians in the early days of jazz. Yeah. And this to me was a really key missing piece because, you know, they talk about jazz as this sort of amalgamation of ragtime and blues by marching bands. And, you know, when I went back and listened to John Philip Sousa, I was like, you know, this is cool, but I'm not hearing what Buddy Bolden must have heard here to inspire him. And this Mexican <laughs> marching band playing this heavily Cuban influenced music, that to yeah, me well, connects I the dots. I mean, it's, there are things you can point to in Sousa if you uh, if you want to. I mean, Sousa was a racist asshole, I should note. If you've read his autobiography, you know that. Uh, he certainly knew how to score for a marching band and get a thrilling sound. Everybody, I actually play uh, The Stars and Stripes Forever sometimes on the rare occasions when I teach. And ev almost everybody knows the piccolo obligato in The Stars and Stripes Forever, Right. You know, ba, 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 da, da, ba, da, 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 you know that piccolo solo that goes all the way through it. That think of that in terms of the jazz solo to be. This is where it was a written out obligato, but you were starting to hear musicians play these improvised obligatos around the main uh, melody filling in, you know, in the in the second half of the phrase, etc. Over time, as Thomas Brothers discusses in his wonderful book, uh, Louis Armstrong's New Orleans, this obligato starts to become more and more central and ultimately become the improvised solo. So we can actually, we actually can connect Sousa to early jazz, but um, there's... A, a lot more going on. And of course, one of the interesting things about early jazz is we don't know what it sounded like because it happened outside the earshot of history. We don't uh, have, famously, we don't have any recordings of Buddy Bolden. We have 
a lot of accounts of what he sounded like. We have Louis's Ar- Louis Armstrong's own account of hearing Buddy Bolden, which would have had to have been when he was at the most five years old or perhaps four, but um, apparently a vivid enough memory that he remembered it. Um, yeah, that's the fascinating thing about Buddy Bolden. I mean, we don't have like an er figure for the blues. We kind of do for ragtime with Scott Joplin, arguably. But with jazz, there seems to be a consensus that we know who the cool Herc was. It was Buddy Bolden playing blues on his cornet, really loud, doing this crazy song called Funky Butt that that stirred people up. But Buddy's not recorded that we know of. He might have cut some cylinders that, that we haven't tracked down. But we haven't seen we haven't seen him. Any anybody who knows the story knows that Buddy goes mad around 1907 or 1908 and never recovers and spends the last decade and a half of his life in a mental institution. And you have a theory on what triggered Buddy Bolden's psychosis that totally blew my mind. Tell us about that. Yeah, and it is I I hasten to uh to label it as a theory because of course there's there's no way to prove it but it's uh bolden uh, let me see let me just see if i can find it here uh in the book itself bolden's madness coming on at the height of his powers in 1906 has never been satisfactorily explained some have linked it with his heavy drinking Jelly Roll Morton and other contemporaries of his suggested that he blew his brains out playing too loud. Actually, it was Armstrong who, did, who suggested that as well. Um, Latter-day commentators have linked his dementia to the pressure of racism or suggested he wasn't really mad at all. But there's another possibility to consider that Buddy Bolden was right. His family was administering a deadly drug to him. This hypothesis has not, to my knowledge, previously come up in discussions of Bolden. I'd like to assemble some circumstantial evidence for it, presuming that it can never be proved or disproved. Here's how Don Marquis describes what happened to Bolden. Quote, he began having severe headaches in March 1906. His wife, Nora, mentioned these bad spells and said he seemed to be afraid of his cornet. Her sister Dora recalled that Buddy's playing began to cause him anguish, seemed to tear him up, and his headaches gave him so much pain he would play wrong notes. She used to go to Adam's drugstore on Howard Street to get medicine for him when he was suffering. End quote. What medicine was Dora getting him at Adam's drugstore? If it was a headache remedy, it was quite possibly cocaine. Three months after Bolden's flip-out on June 30th, 1906, President Theodore Roosevelt signed the landmark Pure Food and Drug Act, which required for the first time disclosure of ingredients and drugstore remedies. Upton Sinclair's novel, The Jungle, an expose of filthy conditions in meatpacking plants, is usually cited as having provided the public outrage that pushed the bill through. But that was the food side. The drug side of the law was propelled both by popular outcry and by growing concern in the medical profession about the excessive unlabeled use of cocaine in a wide range of over-the-counter patent medicines, tonics, and other products. And it goes on from there. But my suggestion is that uh, Bolden was suffering from cocaine psychosis, quite possibly without even knowing it. If his sister went to get Rhino's headache powder, it was 90% pharmaceutical cocaine. Wow. <laughs> yeah, that's a lot of cocaine. It seems like every that's uh, a lot. few that's generations, a lot of cocaine. 
we have to relearn uh cocaine is bad kids <laughs> yeah well i mean it never went away in new orleans one thing about new orleans uh things you know i feel like one of my big points in the year before the flood if i may actually was a perception i had studying ancient egypt ancient egypt's actually pretty good uh, object of study if you want to understand new orleans <laughs> um the uh <laughs> The book by uh, Jan Asman, A-S-S-M-A-N-N, uh, proposed, uh, well, what are, this, this word gets used different ways, but chronotopes. A chronotope is a time place, right? How time passes in a given place. There's this kind of cliche that, oh, time passes differently here. And you think, well, that's just romanticism. But actually, time, as the locals understand it, is somewhat different in New Orleans. And there are, more broadly speaking, two ideas of time. There's what you might call circle time or uh, recursive time, cyclical time, and arrow time or progressive time. What do I mean by that? In progressive time, there's a progress. Things move from one event forward to a development in the future, as in the Christian idea of the birth of Jesus and his second coming at a millennium. So the years are numbered zero forward. Every year has a higher number. Uh, in, in cycle time, every year is the same as the last. And the in Egypt, uh, the, as as far as I know, the actual years were not numbered, though the dynasties were. And in order for this to work, you have to nail it down with festivals uh, and a calendar that of, of recurring events. You have to you, in you read ancient history and you see over and over, you know, going to war being postponed until they could have the festival of such and such a god without which nothing would go right. So New Orleans is nothing if not a town of a very complex calendar of festivals. And in New Orleans, something happens. Other places, you know, something happens and it's over and the next thing happens. In New Orleans, something happens and it continues to happen. So, um, you know, young men still learn the sousaphone uh, so that they might have a better life. Finally, they stopped having people smoke in bars. But uh, when I lived there in uh, 2004, 2005, people still smoked in bars. They still eat a diet that seems to be from another century, um, <laughs> et cetera. The, you know, 50s R&B is still the shit. Um, and Hurricane Aud- Hurricane Audrey is still going on, et cetera, et cetera. So there's, there's a sense a of the... Bit. Of fifties R and B, um, and 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 this is also brings in questions of time and the festivals. This is the Hawkettes with the young Aaron Neville singing. Lee, this is the Mardi Gras Mambo. Down in New Orleans, where the blues were born, it takes a cool cat to blow a horn on La Salle and Rampart Street. The combos play with the mambo beat. The Mardi Gras Mambo, Mambo, Mambo. Mambo, 
And that was the Hawkettes doing a Mardi Gras Mambo with Aaron Neville on lead vocals. Originally a country record. Art Crazy. Neville. Art Neville on the vocals. Oh, my bad. Art, Art. Neville. And uh, I always nope. get my brothers confused. And that and that sort of segues us to the next big musical explosion that comes out of New Orleans, which is in the 40s and 50s, there's a studio. Cosimo Matassa has a studio. A guy named Dave Bartholomew starts putting bands together. He meets a young pianist named Fats Domino who becomes his front man. The two of them have a successful musical partnership, but they make a lot more records than just Fats Domino records or even than just Dave Bartholomew records. Basically, I yeah. mean, everybody's recording with them. Little Richard is recording with this band. The great Earl Palmer, who's the drummer that essentially invents rock and roll drumming, plays uh, for them and plays with Little Richard through that. Tell us about this second wave of New Orleans creativity that explodes in rhythm and blues and rock and roll in the 40s and 50s. Yeah. Uh, Dave Bartholomew created the first studio band in um, U.S. music history. The The band that uh, the singer could come into, and there was a band there. Uh, there was one studio, and when that studio went out of business in the 60s, uh, not for lack of business, but because of too much success, um, which uh, caused a series of debts that they couldn't service. Um, the, that, when that studio went out of business, uh, it was very bad because it was still the only recording studio in New Orleans. All these years, uh, Cosmo Matassa's studio and Cosmo had a way of working that uh, everybody understood. Everybody was there in one room together. Uh, they would play a song as many times as necessary to make it happen. 15 takes of a song were, was not unheard of. If, if they, if Cosmo felt they hadn't quite gotten there yet, Dave Bartholomew was the genius who led that band. And if you listen to, uh, the fat man, Fats Domino's first hit from 1949 with Earl Palmer on drums, uh, when that, uh, the the, uh, the shuffle feeling becomes more literalized and it's a much simpler rhythm nailed down with a backbeat. That's the beginning, you might say, of rock and roll drumming. Uh, if there's one guy who, uh, I mean, none of, none of these things were done by one person, but if there is one guy who we could say invented rock and roll drumming, Earl Palmer would have the best claim on that, having done it uh, not just with the Fat Man, but with various records on which he invented various approaches that later became standard. And yeah, the fame of Cosmo Matassa studio out of New Orleans as a center of recording and also live gigging was such that uh, all sorts of people came to New Orleans to uh, to get their early hits. So you had Ray Charles record in New Orleans. You had Sam Cooke record in New Orleans before he was a, a big solo star. You had um, uh, Guitar Slim, you know, the things I used to do. You had, uh, and famously, Little Richard, for which uh, Palmer first uh, invented what some drummers call the half-and-half half groove, which is to say shuffling while straight eighths are going on, and then um, playing the finally playing that straight eighths backbeat on uh, Lucille. I might note that Palmer then uh, moved on to Los Angeles, where he became... Uh, 
a superstar session drummer and with Richie Valens invented two more of the fundamental beats, uh, La Bamba, which was a rocked up cha-cha-cha, and uh, the Come On, Let's Go beat, which was still being played um, well into the uh, 90s. And and I should mention that jazz kind of fell apart in New Orleans when the uh, Surgeon General of the U.S. shut down Storyville, the Vice District. There was no place for musicians to work. They People like Louis Armstrong and, and King Oliver migrate to Chicago, later on to New York. Some of them went all the way to San Francisco. And, you know, there's this great jazz diaspora out of New Orleans, um, and, and it kind of conquers the planet in from other places. And the second wave of African-American musical invention in the 20th century in New Orleans stays together in New Orleans better. But like you say, Earl Palmer, Palmer leaves for L.A. in the late 50s of uh, union disputes. He, he just got much better pay. He was treated fairly in L.A. And in New Orleans, there was a segregated musicians union that uh, screwed over the, the black musicians. But nonetheless, Dave Bartholomew and Fats Domino, you know, have their 50 year run. Cosimo keeps his studio going into the mid 60s. A guy named Alain Toussaint comes along kind of picks up the torch in the late 50s, producing records like Ernie Cato's Mother-in-Law, and then leads a process that helps invent funk with people like Lee Dorsey and puts together a new studio band that becomes known as The Meters later on. Tell us, why is New Orleans considered holy ground for funk? And why do people like George Clinton consider it, you know, kind of the motherland of funk? Uh, funny you mentioned George. Um, the one time I got to interview him, it was a very short interview. It was, uh, I chased him around all weekend trying to get the interview. This was back in the 90s. And uh, they, his publicist said, okay, show up at the hotel when they arrive. So I was there. He, he, they get off the bus, totally road burn. I um, feel totally stupid. Hello, Mr. Clinton, I'd like to interview you. Yeah, okay, come to the show. Uh, so uh, talk to me after the show. So I, you know, I come to the show tramps four-hour show like it's four in the morning and like i'm like i get my interview for afropop worldwide so i go down and um you know he clearly does not want to do an interview at this moment after four <laughs> hours of screaming and stage yeah. but um he does it for three minutes but every single thing he said was perfect and perfectly usable it was actually quite a worthwhile interview and unbidden i asked him i asked him i was still new at the interviewing game and i asked him a really dumb question in retrospect what's the about uh you know the george clinton definition of funk and he got to talking unprompted by me about the importance of New Orleans and the meters. I was really impressed by that. And the answer is, of course, that in New Orleans, genres, genre walls aren't, uh, aren't at all rigid. Uh, it's one big, um, I, I'm tempted to even use the dreaded gumbo metaphor, but uh, it's it's one big uh, stew of music that, uh, you know, you can, uh, whatever you play, whatever genre you're ostensibly playing, it's going to sound like you're in New Orleans. And the lingua franca way of playing music in New Orleans is what becomes funk. Um, now, uh what is funk indeed uh george clinton's definition was funk is good toilet paper um but uh the uh, you know i asked bobby bird james brown's musical director 
you know, about what musically is funk. And he said, rhythmic independence, you know, when, I, when everybody's playing a different rhythm and it's all fitting together like a glove. Um, this gets going in New Orleans somehow, uh, this way of playing so that funk becomes the lingua franca of New Orleans music. And there, uh, there's reason to think that Earl Palmer was the guy who got people talking about playing it funky. Uh, funk, of course, is a word that meant bad smell uh, forever, uh, going back to the 17th century. Uh, you can find it in um, the first uh, the first occurrence of it in uh, in North the first occurrence of it in the the modern sense in the uh, Oxford English Dictionary is from Virginia in the uh, 17th century. Uh, so this this word for a bad smell, as in funky butt, uh, becomes a an attitude toward playing music, and to this day, to my mind. If you want to understand funk, if you want to understand jazz, uh, go to New Orleans because those musics, the musics that we call by those names. And of course, there is a movement now to stop using the word jazz. Um, and a lot of people, for a lot of people, New Orleans history only begins with jazz. For a lot of people, New Orleans is only, New Orleans is jazz, and that's it. But uh, there's so much more that comes out of the uh, the New Orleans uh, variety of musical approaches than funk, R and B, and jazz. Even there is, for example, Mardi Gras Indian music, uh, which predates jazz. And hear from our sponsors when we come back. You can tell us about Mardi Gras Indian music. So let's talk about the Mardi Gras Indians. You mentioned Big Bill, uh, Wild Bill's Western show in the 1880s. Buffalo Bill, sorry, Buffalo Bill Cody, um, mass yeah. murder of the of the uh, native uh, buffalo. Had this Wild West show in the 1880s. Some people think that was the inspiration for the. Mardi Gras Indian, which is when African-American men costume themselves in Native American regalia and parade in the streets. This has got its own parallel history with like with everything in New Orleans. There's a white Mardi Gras and there's a black Mardi Gras. Tell us about the black Mardi Gras. Okay, well, I recently I've been doing Zooms twice a month, um, which anybody can uh, Join, by the way, email me, postmambo at gmail, if you want to get on one of my Zooms. I had a, an interview with Dr. Maurice Martinez, who's now 88 and who made the first film about Mardi Gras Indians in 1976. And he went on um, an extended um, diatribe against the idea that Buffalo Bill's Wild West show was the inspiration for the Mardi Gras Indians. Um now, I tell the story in, in the book, and of course, I'm one of those people who looks for consensus, and I sort of think that everybody's right in this sense. That is to say, the Creole Wild West, which is the first organized uh, Mardi Gras Indian gang, or now we say black masking Indians, the first Mardi Gras Indian gang that we know of, they call them gangs, um, in, in, a, in the 1880s, uh, happens the year... At the first Mardi Gras of uh, 
Buffalo Bills Wild West show in New Orleans. The parallelism is very, very great. And there are, there are other reasons to note the influence. Buffalo Bills Wild West show made a huge uh, impression on New Orleans. They uh, had uh, to draw people to a spectacle of pageantry like that, uh, Joe Roach writes about this in uh, Cities of the Dead. They would have these uh, giant parades and processions through town, and the stars of this procession were uh, planes, fully fully dressed Plains Indians who were being allowed to display their culture in public at a time when African-Americans uh, were utterly ghettoized and weren't allowed to display theirs. So the way I see it is that this became something that could all could be borrowed, appropriated, uh, even satirized, if you will, to make the Creole Wild West. But what the Mardi Gras Indians are about and represent is way older than the Buffalo Bill Wild West show and does not really take its inspiration from that. It's uh, almost all of the uh, the narratives that I've heard take it back to Congo Square, which was a kind of a both a place of preservation, but also a laboratory where a new African-American music, a new New Orleans music was formed in the early 19th century. The, the, the roots of Mardi Gras Indianing go way back before the 1880s, in other words. And it becomes what its practitioners want it to be, by which I mean that uh, it's, it's similar. We can find things that remind us of other things that happen in the Antilles. We can, some people are struck by certain parallels to the Abaqua cult of Cuba. Some people are struck by uh, resemblances to things that happen at Carnival in Trinidad or Brazil. What we, can, we can see some similarities, but it's peculiarly, idiomatically, and originally New Orleans. Uh, and it has the meaning of Mardi Gras Indians have changed greatly over the years. Um, everything, the meaning of um, a lot of black public uh, celebrations in New Orleans, I think, changed uh, with the civil rights movement, uh, which was uh, of which New Orleans was a, a central nucleus, a very important spot of a very important uh, part of the civil rights movement was New Orleans. All of this moved the meaning of Mardi Gras Indians um, into a, a new era, uh, famously, of course. Tutti Montana, who um, who proposed a shifting in the culture from from actual physical fighting to uh, aesthetic competition. But uh, what I want, my point in bringing them up was the music. Monica Indians have a very interesting and original musical repertoire, which, in some way, though we don't have recordings, predates jazz. And, or as my wife said, after we saw Bo Dallas's, uh 30-year uh, anniversary in show business concert at the House of Blues in 2005, without the Mardi Gras Indians, all the rest of it would crumble. Um, the Mardi Gras Indians, for those who don't know, are um, small groups of African-American men who uh, go out at... Uh, 
on Mardi Gras Day and also on a couple of other times a year, St. Joseph's Night and Super Sunday, and some come out during Jazz Fest as well, and others uh, perform during the year, but they're all, uh, at, you know, musically in, in their suits. But uh, they're only, a, it's really Mardi Gras and St. Joseph's Night and Super Sunday are the three big moments for uh, displaying their work. They make these elaborate suits, which probably everybody's seen pictures of now, which have to be made from scratch every year, which uh, cost a tremendous amount of money. The people who do it are mostly from um you know, the, historically, from the artisan class, uh, that is to say, they have physical uh, physical skills. Atuti Montana was a lathe operator and could make these uh, these tremendous three dimensional suits. Um, their music, because it is so goes back so far, can become any other kind of genre of New Orleans music, if you put those clothes on it, that is to say, Ico Ico, a song we've probably all heard, you know, was a, a pop hit record by the Dixie Cups. It's, uh, it's first recording by Sugar Boy Crawford is Giacomo was more, uh, a kind of R and B mambo. Uh, Dr. John gave it the funk treatment. Uh, you, uh, Henry Butler played it as jazz. You can really do uh, do it any do this music any of a number of ways, and the repertoire of songs isn't huge. But uh, keep hearing more songs all the time. The longer the tradition develops, it's a creative tradition. People continue to people continue to add to it. The latest uh, new uh, treatment that I've heard is from a group called Seven Niners Gang. Um, a chief from the seventh ward and a chief from the ninth ward, uh, Romeo Bourget and Germain Bossier, who get to uh, get together and uh, have a more hip hop flavored uh, version of Mardi Gras Indian music. Also, with uh, when I saw them uh, recently, uh, live timbales along with a drum set, which gave it a really solid sound that I just love. Uh, and I also want to say that the it, I want to say one more thing about that, which is that it is, uh, for the people who do it, it is a major lifetime commitment, both in civic terms, because Mardi Gras Indians are, to be a Mardi Gras Indian today is about being a good citizen, uh, and both in civic terms and also in um, in terms of the aesthetics of it. You are you are committed to do that. This is a way of life for you that uh, that occasions a spiritual transformation. I've talked to a, several uh, chiefs about what happens when they put on that suit, and they talk about going into a spiritual transformation, uh, even akin to a kind of spirit possession that you might see at religious events. Before I play our next tune, I want to bring up there's one genre of music that is a little bit separate. You talk about how, you know, there's a great record store that was there in New Orleans when you were there that would play all kinds of New Orleans music except for this one genre. And that's hip hop, of course, to which New Orleans has made massive contributions. And this is Manny Fresh's real big, the clean version. And one of before you talk about the divide between hip hop and all the other music of New Orleans, I want you to also tell us your riff on why the clean version, why you should get your hip hop at Walmart, basically, why the clean is better than the explicit. This is Manny Fresh, real big. Real big, real big. 
snatch, snatch, I'm a real big time. King of the hood, everything wood. Look like a forest in the truck and I'm a pool. Master so set, big open deck. Hardwood flows and that thing that connect from the front to the back. Try to top that, 615 beating hard in the deck. Push that button, microwave oven. I'm just getting started, pimp. You ain't seen nothing. That a fish tank, bro? Okay, that was Manny Fresh's real big. The clean version. Now you can tell us why why you should get your <laughs> um, Manny Fresh and real big. Um, let's back up. Um, I always, as you know, I always zoom out first. Um, New Orleans was one of the last places to get hip hop going. Really, it uh, when I was there in 1992, I went around to the record stores trying to find hip hop records, and there wasn't much. There wasn't much, uh, weren't that, I mean, the, the local labels were very small. There were still, I bought an, I bought a single by a 12 inch by Mia X, who's still around. She's now a, uh, a senior figure who promotes, uh, healthy cooking. Um, but the, in the nineties, two labels got going as many people know, uh, Masterpiece, No Limit, and uh, the Williams Brothers Cash Money Records, and uh, each of which had its own sound and its own house production team. They made the records cheaply and sold them massively. And these records, especially uh, after the uh, after both Biggie and Tupac were taken out, uh, Masterpiece, No Limit sort of filled the void uh, for a gritty uh, product at the at that 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 the hole that had kind of opened up in the market at that moment and cash money uh, with Manny Fresh producing all the tracks and whose first uh, big group was the Hot Boys which later uh, which included Juvenile Lil Wayne Beachy and Turk, uh, three of whom uh, had platinum records on their own subsequently, and Little Wayne, of course, uh, going into a whole other level of mega stardom in the 21st century. And uh, I, my contention is that the uh, the Cash Money records, many many Fresh's records are uh, will stand. You know, 50 years from now we'll be able to put them on and boy these sound great even as the passions of that time have cooled and the rawness and raunchiness fades into history the way the rawness and raunchiness of uh earlier times uh seems somewhat more acceptable uh now than it did when it was coming out um when I say buy your hip hop at Walmart, of course, Walmart uh, insisted on uh, selling only sanitized versions. And of course, radio would only play sanitized versions. So all the curse words, as well as the N word and the B word had to be beeped out. Now, I have a theory, which is that, uh, well, I, I'm somebody who believes that the, the greatest rapper was Rakim. And one of the things that was so great about Rakim was his vocabulary. He had a whole cosmology and he had a vocabulary that was particularly uh, evocative because he did not curse. 
every time, I mean, I, I curse a lot in my own songs too. So, uh, I mean, I sympathize with people who like to curse in their lyrics, but, uh, you know, every time you curse, there's a, there's a better word you could have used. And, uh, if you, if you listen to the, uh, the, uh, the clean versions, often you'll get like just a blank where that curse word was. And that to me somehow opens up more space in it, makes it more open, uh, as well as being just plain old less gross. Uh, in uh, the Manny Fresh record in um, in that you played, uh, you you played the uh, the clean version, right? Cars yeah. real big, belly real belly big, big, rings real big, uh, belly, cars real big, rings real big, belly real big. Let me tell you how I live. I think it was, uh, you know, belly real big in the uh, dirty version was a uh, dick real big, which is if you bought the album, what you got. And somehow I was like, eh, you know, <laughs> I was less <laughs> enthusiastic about that one. <laughs> but uh, belly real big was funny. <laughs> Yeah. Um, another, I mean, you know, there, there are lots of examples of, I, there are a lot of, uh, you know, hip hop records where uh, many of the words in the, in, in the track are uh, dipped out and you get this very interesting rhythmic texture of words and silences, which are also built into the song from the outset because the rappers know this is going to happen. And the curse words kind of become accent points, which can either become a curse word or a silence. Tell us a little bit about Bounce, which was the subgenre of hip hop that predated both No Limit and Cash Money Records. This is a really unique thing to New Orleans, but it starts with the record from New York, the drag rap by the showboys how did one record that wasn't a hit nationally come from new york and become a whole genre in new orleans and this is something that started to happen um in a couple of places around this time where a single record i mean there were actually i probably exaggerated a little bit in my book there were other uh there were other tracks that uh were part of early bounce it wasn't only drag rap, but the the drag rap, or as they called it in New Orleans, the Trigger Man beat, was so pervasive. So many of the early bounce hits were made to the Trigger Man beat. And it's a little hard to say why, what it was about that. Now I can point to things about it, uh, but it's there's no real answer as to why this caught on. There often there never is a real answer as to why things catch on, but the fact is they do. Uh, you think of um, this one rhythm, the dembo rhythm that becomes the reggaeton, you know, this one, this one dance hall reggae uh, beat that uh, spawns an entire genre. Miami bass music um, did something rather similar in the 90s. But in New Orleans, it was uh, Showboy's Drag Rap, which was on profile records and was apparently brought to New Orleans by Run DMC on tour. Run DMC were profile artists. And uh, apparently, uh, they brought the record with them. And uh, for whatever reason, uh, it became... uh, it became a hit. The, the uh, Trigger Man was the first record that uh, people heard that uh, that used that beat, and that beat had a uh, had uh, was uh, used the 808 drum machine, and was built on the 
had the dragnet theme in in showboy in the showboys record bomb bottom bomb which uh is kind of becomes an object a musical object denoting crime you know bomb bottom bomb that just almost suggests that's we hear that that suggests police procedure uh criminal investigation etc the in other words the appropriate vibe for gangster rap and but i also note that although it's not the rhythmic basis that is the habanera rhythm which we hear so much in new orleans boom 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 um, I don't know, but I do know that uh, the the bounce grows out of this genre, and still today in New Orleans, we're, we talk about bounce. Bounce became a permanent part of the New Orleans scene. Um, I, you know, I mentioned before that in New Orleans, something happens; it continues to happen. Bounce has continued to happen. You almost more you know we we hear uh today you know the, well after katrina after the the big change by that time most of the big gangster rappers uh were living outside you know the cash money guys many of them had moved to florida which has no state income tax and uh there was a kind of a hole in uh new orleans hip-hop that allowed for the so-called sissy bounce to emerge big frida sissy nobby etc and um this was they called it sissy bounce it was still it was still bounce and bounce continues to be the the it's by by now it's uh of course it's not all the trigger man beat uh it's uh various kinds of beats that come together under that umbrella, but there's still some kind of, uh, you know, sensibility cluster there that we can identify as bounce. And let's hear our final song snippet. And this is another example of how things never end in new Orleans. And this is Dr. John, uh, toward the end of his career with Mavis Staples doing a very different take on when the saints go marching in. This is something I would never have heard had not been for your recommendation. And that was the late, great Dr. John with the late, great Mavis Staples um, doing When the Saints Go Marching In. Mavis is still with us. Mavis is still with us. My bad, my bad, my bad. No, 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 no. We can't have that dirge yet. (laughs) My apologies. Mavis, we love you. Please yes, don't, don't leave us, Mavis. We need you. We need you more than ever. Uh-huh. But this is a classic example. This is a really powerful version of When the Saints Go Marching In, which has to be the corniest song, you know, to come out of the New Orleans jazz explosion. I mean, it's been so drained of interest by bad trad jazz bands all around the world butchering it. I butchered it for many years playing my recorder as a kid, but to hear it with such power in the 21st century from somebody like Dr. John, who to me, you know, his heyday was 1968 or the early 70s or when he was working with Doc Pomus in the 80s. But, you know, as you point out, many of these New Orleans artists were still making great work right up to the end of their lives. And Neville Brothers also putting out great stuff around that time. Talk about how that 
happens and what happened after Katrina and and since your book has been published? I mean, did Katrina completely wipe this out or is New Orleans still surviving and is the old music still alive? New Orleans is very much still there. That's a that's another question. But let's go back to Dr. John. Uh, Mac Rebenack, who remained highly creative right up until his final moments uh, and who who produced all of his records are worthy of checking out. His uh, take on Saints, now Saints was a song that uh, really I think uh, Armstrong, Louis Armstrong, uh, was the one who uh, popularized it and made it into the sort of New Orleans anthem. And, uh, you know, I, I sort of feel like, you know, if you hear uh, if you hear a New Orleans band play when the Saints go marching in, they that means they think you're a tourist. Uh, I sort of see it as an indirect dig at the audience. <laughs> but uh, there's a there's a sign in Preservation Hall, you know, um, requests five cents, I mean, saints, you know, one dollar. Um, the uh, but Dr. John uh, in, says that this was an older song called When the Wicked Shall Cease to Roam in a minor key. And by playing it as a dirge and bringing in the, the power that is Mavis Staples, um, yeah, the, to hear the two of them together just gives, just, just gives me goosebumps. That was, I, when I, I actually got to face-to-face talking with uh, Mac, tell him uh, how much I appreciated his bringing that song back into the sacred space again. And uh, he thanked me for saying that because he knew exactly what I was talking about. In terms of your question about is New Orleans, is it still going on in New Orleans? Well, New Orleans took a a serious blow. And uh, it's it's a permanent transformation of the city. Everything, you know, as you know, to take another example, the pandemic is a permanent transformation of our lives and the society we live in. Uh, pretty early on in the pandemic, we realized it's not that things are just going to come back to normal. This is where we are and we have to work forward from the position we're at. That's happened in New Orleans, in particular in New Orleans, uh, where so many people, if they didn't have a destination when the city was completely forcibly evacuated uh, and people were given one-week tickets to cities not to destinations not of their choosing all over the country in order to disperse the black community of New Orleans as much as possible um, a number of middle-class black people were not able to get back to New Orleans and they have a uh, they they were a somewhat smaller, um, you know, I think as as many as as 100,000 people short for a while. I think over the years, though, people have been filtering back. Uh, New Orleans has a black mayor again. Um, I'm optimistic uh, about New Orleans culture, even as I'm pessimistic about the future of the United States and of the biosphere and of New Orleans' physical existence. I'm confident that the culture of new orleans is in good hands these days well i'm very happy to hear that ned and i wish we had more time to hear you drop science about new orleans and thanks for the corrections on my 
too many mistakes, but my guess has been that <laughs> sublet. <laughs> the book is The Year Before the Flood, a story of New Orleans, which I cannot recommend highly enough. My wife doesn't pay any attention to my music books, but I'm making her read this one. It's such a powerful book um, for anybody, music fan or not music fan. It's it's American history, and it's brutal and heartbreaking and also beautiful. And this culture that you've helped chronicle has given us all so much. So so thanks, Ned, and hope to have you back to talk about Cuba next time. Oh, uh, thank, you. thank you. And may I say one more thing? Sure. I lead music immersion travel, uh, and we are having a post-Mambo New Orleans music seminar February 1st through the 6th, 2023. Five days of intensive cultural activity in New Orleans. Uh, if you want to uh, join us, write me postmambo at gmail. I might take you up on that, Ned, and I encourage all of our listeners to do so. Thanks again, Ned Subway. Thank you, Nate. Bye. Follow the Let It Roll podcast on Twitter at Let It Rollcast and check out our website at LetItRollPodcast.com. Next week, Nate welcomes back Dan Charnas to discuss hip-hop genius Jay Dilla. Let It Roll is a Pantheon podcast, and you can listen to more great podcasts at www.PantheonPodcasts.com. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points. Fantasy Points.